RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Episode 1, The Star Trek Guide, April 17th, 1967. Support for The Trek Files comes from our friends at Eagle Moss and the official Star Trek Starships Collection. Get the first starship in the collection, Star Trek The Next Generation's Enterprise D, for only $4.95 with free shipping when you sign up now at st-starships.com slash thetrekfiles. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Hello, Star Trek fans, background buffs, and Trekophiles. And I say that with an F, not with a PH. <laughs> I am so pleased and excited to welcome you aboard our maiden voyage of The Trek Files where we're going to be plumbing the depths of some really unexplored realms, otherwise known as Gene Roddenberry's files and archives. Now look, if you've been a fan for more than 47 minutes, our debut document, which you can find at facebook.com slash thetrekfiles, and follow along with us, if you've been a fan for any length of time, you may actually already own or certainly have seen or read from our debut document. It's the Writer's Guide formerly known as the Star Trek Guide, from April 17, 1967, the third revision. It's actually the show Bible, which every Star Trek since has duplicated in some way. Star Trek was such a complicated show, much less science fiction, that writers who came in to pitch and write really needed a hand, uh, a hand up. And the show runners and show creators really needed to do all they could to ease the way for the mainstream TV writer and the mainstream science fiction writer who hadn't done TV before to get them into the Star Trek flow as easily as possible. And aside from all the characters and sets and the technology of the Star Trek, the most important thing that leads off the whole guide is a test, a test for science fiction writers. Basically, uh, the, the writers present a problem and then say, what is wrong with it? Give four multiple-choice answers, and then explain why each one is either correct or not correct. And to really bring the point home, they flip the scene, set it aboard a naval cruiser in Vietnam waters, and then ask the potential writer, how would this work in modern day? It's all about setting up the believability factor, which we've all come to know is one of the secrets of Star Trek's success. Well, here's how Gene Roddenberry... Gene Kuhn, Dorothy Fontana, and the rest of the staff made their point. It's as simple as that. This is our standard test that has led to Star Trek believability. And so in every scene of our Star Trek story, translated into a real-life situation, or sometimes as useful, try it in your mind as a scene in Gunsmoke, Naked City, or some similar show. Would you believe the people in the scene if it happened there? If you're one of those who answers the character acts that way because it's science fiction, don't call us. We'll call you. We'll be right back after a short word from our sponsor. Star Trek fans, your ships have come in. 
The official Star Trek Starships collection from Eagle Moss is the ultimate collection of the most significant vessels from across the Star Trek universe, from the original series to Star Trek Beyond and Beyond. Each ship is cast in a specially formulated metallic resin and hand-painted with reference to actual production models. Each also comes with a display base and collector's magazine featuring behind-the-scenes info, original design sketches, and a breakdown of technology on board. Start your collection today with the USS Enterprise 1701D for only $4.95 with free shipping. New models ship twice monthly, and you may cancel your subscription at any time. For details on the entire collection and to order, visit st-starships.com slash thetrackfiles. Make it so at st-starships.com slash thetrackfiles. The believability factor behind all the moralities, behind all the awesome adventures, behind all the incredible characters, behind all the gee whiz futurism. If you didn't believe it, you wouldn't watch. I think that's the point that my good friend and co-host today, John Champion, here for our debut episode, and you know him from Mission Log podcast, I think that's something we can all agree on, right, John? Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, Glad to be here. Glad to be kicking off the Trek Files with you. Thank you. you know, this is one of those things that I, I go back to something that I've said that I've I've heard Brandon Braga certainly say, which is that at the end of the day, Star Trek is about people. It is about the people on screen and the people watching and whether or not they can relate. And if you don't have that, then your show's not going to last. If all it is is just a morality tale and and just science fiction adventure. Well, there have been shows like that, but if you're not invested in what's happening, then why keep watching? And certainly why keep watching for 50 years? And, and, and why not just do an anthology series? They're a hell of a lot easier to do. You don't <laughs> right, have to worry right. about the C word, continuity yes. slash canon, right? Yes, yes. Uh, everything is a one-off. And of course, Twilight Zone had done that brilliantly as a pioneer, but that's what Star Trek was – that's why it had the impact that it did. It was the first running intelligent science fiction uh, show with a regular cast in a regular setting. And that was a hard – that was a hard thing to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean the writer's guide that we love is a Bible for fa- – it wasn't written for fans. It wasn't the world's first encyclopedia concordance. <laughs> it was written as a professional Hollywood guide to save Gene and Gene Roddenberry, Gene Kuhn, Dorothy Fontana. It was to save them all a hell of a lot of time right. in their <laughs> right. rewrites. Right. But it's, it's interesting that we get off on – we talk about the characters and shipping and the plots and the, and the, and the morality tales and all of that. Uh, and – but again, it, it, the other the other passage I remember so well back in the day when there was nothing we had you could count everything you'd read about Star Trek on one hand. Mm-hmm. Back from Stephen Whitfield's original making of Star Trek, where he's quoting Gene saying, "My feeling was that if you believe in the spaceship, if you if you didn't believe in the spaceship, if you didn't believe you were in a vehicle traveling through space in a vehicle that made sense, the layout and design made sense, then you wouldn't believe in the series." Yeah. You wouldn't believe yeah. – and you wouldn't believe these people and their situations, and they're just crazy people in the future. No, the whole point was a 1960s or a 20-teens audience is going to see characters not really from 300 years, 200 years in the future. It's really going to be projections of us into those points, but 
they're going to be set in that time. There, you know, that has to be that connection. Yeah. I think Gene talked about it. if we really had people from 300 years in the future, we wouldn't recognize them right, in right. many ways. Yeah. So there is that conceit. But I think sometimes in the big picture of when we praise Star Trek, we almost make fun of, of believability, which ex- extends into our wonderful canon word too. But that's the root. That's, that's right there on the front. The first thing they yell at the writers yeah. in the 60s is don't worry about the – Crazy sci-fi. Yeah. The, the thing that I try to think about is it, what was the landscape leading up to this show? So you had some science fiction, uh, you know, movies and TV shows certainly on before that. Forbidden Planet is a big standout because it was taken right. seriously without being melodramatic. The, these were characters you could believe. There were guys out on a mission experiencing something new, as opposed to what had come before that. Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon, loads of fun. But kind of two-dimensional, <laughs> you right, know? Right, um, And then look at TV at this time. Well, the science fiction breakout hit was Lost in Space. How much of that is really believable? <laughs> Not a guy in a giant carrot suit, okay? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> you know? well, right. Yeah. Not a sniveling saboteur-turned-comic, you know, buffoon right. every right. week. Right, right. But again, you mentioned Forbidden Planet. That's one of mm-hmm. the seminal influences with yes. the space service and, and a crew that you can identify with. But it had the luxury of being a one-off movie. Right, <laughs> they could right. spend the bucks, yeah. and do a yeah. film feature budget. And there were, few, you know, and there were so many B movies, you know, with the bug-eyed monster of the week or the giant radiated animal or whatever it was mm-hmm. that weren't good. But the bottom line is, Star Trek was created as a series, uh, and, and and it was even harder. They couldn't do it. You know, it wasn't a one-off. It wasn't a, a, a big flash in the pan. We're going to go all out on this effect or this creature or this concept or this set, this planet, because we don't have to worry about doing it again next week. Right. We right. have six yeah. months to do it. Yeah. We have nine yeah. months to work on it. Well, the, the thing that I love about this document so much is that, and like you mentioned at the top of the show, many Star Trek fans have seen this or they've seen versions of it, and, and it just sort of evolved over time. Right. And if you go back way, way back to the beginning with the description of Star Trek when it was Captain Robert April, when it was the Yorktown, right. it was all these other permutations, there is attention given to the technology. How, how can we justify getting from one place to the other? How can we justify the, the planets and the situations we run into? But there's a lot of room here given to the characters, deep descriptions of who these characters are, how they interact, um, what their backgrounds are. I, I love that so much attention is given to that. So it really does help the writer along. Um, what we didn't talk about before in, in detail was what is that believability test? You mentioned that it's... Um, you know, trying to, to set things in a, a modern, uh, for the time, 1966 Vietnam uh, uh, period. So they say, okay, in our spaceship, what happens in this situation? Does the captain reach out for the hand of the lovely young yeoman next right. to him? Right. And then the answer is no, because that wouldn't happen on a ship serving in Vietnam right now. Right. That's the specific yeah. example they point mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. And ironically, of course, that's exactly what happened in Where No Man's Gone Before. It is, right, right. <laughs> when yeah. Kirk does well, reach, reach back for, uh, you know, Yeoman's, Yeoman Smith's hand. And um, uh, and they, then they point that out and say, actually, yeah. we did this in our second pilot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but overall, overall, it's got to be grounded today. But again, the capper is, the kicker is the final line here that, you, that the document we, we included here. If you're one of those who says, well, they do that because it's sci-fi, 
don't call us, we'll call you. And yes. again, yes. this is the 60s. It's not the Big Bang Theory generation. We're not drenched in 24-7 genre. You know, comic superhero movies are not driving movie box office. People, sci-fi was a little niche genre for wacky little sci-fi people, for readers who themselves bemoaned the fact they couldn't get decent science fiction on screen in a movie, much less on a television series. And that's why Star Trek was such a such a breakthrough, such a moment for them. And then it totally expanded the sci-fi fandom field to the point where very soon Star Trek conventions would split off from sci-fi conventions that right. became such an entity into themselves. But yeah, at the time... Science fiction had little respect. It had little, even among writers, it had little respect. Or they approached it very fearfully. They, if the writer, they just wanted to make a buck this week. <laughs> you know, so I can do one of those. Um, no, that's what the writer's guide was for. And it was almost a point where just as it would be 20 and 30 and 40 years later, you know, if you don't have the aptitude here, guys, don't, don't, don't. You know, don't waste our time, don't waste your time. Yeah, and I imagine that this was a big help for the people who had been writing science fiction for, like, the pulp magazines and and novels for a long time. Not to say that that they were any slouches of of writers, but this is a different format. It's a different sort of uh, set of parameters that the producers here wanted out of those writers. Well, the double-sided, the the other side of the coin was you had TV writers trying to learn science fiction. You had Harlan Ellison and Ted Sturgeon and Norman right. Spinrad, who were not script writers, right. who had right. great ideas, and Bob Justman pulling out his hair. <laughs> I can't, I can't produce this. Yeah. I can produce this as a movie, much less as a weekly TV show. Right. You right. know, trying to shoehorn these great sci-fi writers on the other side of the fence into a producible shooting script, which you know, if nothing else, yeah. we got all the wonderful Bob Justman memos. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Bemoaning this fact, and we got some incredible shows, which, in many cases, many episodes. Uh, from the original series and onward that are wonderful episodes that have wonderful science fiction classic authors on their titles that were heavily rewritten by the genes yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or John D.F. Black or whoever was in place at the time, Dorothy Fontana, who made it producible. Well, I, I guess part of the thing that's so funny to me is that we, we live in a culture now where – Geeking out about something is the norm. Right. So Star Trek fans, Star Wars fans, whatever you know, Harry Potter fans. They whatever know your geek guy, your geek, whatever your geek flag flying is yeah. all about. Yeah, yeah, and, and and you're sort of allowed to have these deep conversations about minutia, no matter what. This must have seemed really weird for a bunch of producers to be that concerned about all the details of their show. And I love the closing line of this, because we're actually looking at a couple of different permutations of this. The last line in a Q&A, mm-hmm. it's an FAQ in 1967, it says, are you people on LSD? And the answer is, we tried, but we couldn't keep it lit. Because it <laughs> must have looked really odd if you're a prospective writer, to get this document, it's, wow, they really spent that much time thinking about people in space? It is so difficult. I take it for granted because I have been fortunate enough to bridge the time zone. But I always try to stop and take a breath and remember that we have so many, you know, yes, younger viewers, younger fans who were not, not just part of Star Trek but part of the culture at a time, you know, pre not just pre-internet, but at a time when science fiction, when anything genre, anything fantastical, did not have the automatic respect out of the gate that it does now. And and uh, it's it's good to go back and remember that. I mean, a book that I love to go back to, too, the first book on Star Trek fandom, Star Trek Lives, that we're going to revisit down the line, mm-hmm. 
they, they call this out as the believability effect, the believability factor. And they, too, point out that that, that appealed to a certain element of the audience. Um, we, we just take that for granted now, and we need to remember that from day one and thankfully behind many entertaining memos among the writing staff <laughs> right. that we'll maybe get into sometime, um, that just how important that was. And it's important to say that it's the first it's the first shot out of the gate in the very first writer's, writer's guide, the very first direction to any sci-fi writer, any TV writer, that that was going to be the cornerstone of Star Trek, and that's been the cornerstone ever since. Well, thanks for joining us, friends, and thank you, Larry, for having me on. I'd like to remind everybody that they can take a look at all of these documents and comment and uh, interact with us and and with the show at facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. Yes, thank you, John, for that reminder that every document every week will be at The Trek Files at facebook.com slash The Trek Files for everyone to see, catch up, and even prep on. And thank you again for being here for our maiden voyage on The Trek Files. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Additional production by Ken Ray. All documents are available at facebook.com slash The Trek Files. For more great podcasts, check out podcast.roddenberry.com. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit me, Dr. Trek, and Portal 47 at LarryNimacek.com. Podcast.roddenberry.com, the Roddenberry Podcast Network.